So at, at the start of this year, if you've been with us, you know that we've been kind of on a journey through the book of Ruth. And as we edge closer to really what is the middle of this book, the center of this book, I thought it best that we do a little review, a little recap of uh, the story so far. And we look at the characters and we try to get our hearts and our minds around the characters, around the events as we enter in this center section of, of the, the story. So the story began with a famine in Israel. And uh, this famine uh, led to a family of Israelites leading, leaving Bethlehem of Judah and traveling to the land of Moab. And in this family are Elimelech, the father and the husband, uh, Naomi, uh, who is the mother, and two sons, Malon and Kilion. And they leave their home in Israel because of a famine. And uh, when they arrive in Moab, it says they remained there, they settled there. And after some time, we don't know exactly how long, Elimelech dies. So the dad in this family dies. And 10 years or so later, the two sons, after having married Moabite wives, also die. And the author summarizes the reality of this event by saying of Naomi, the only surviving member of this family, in Ruth 1.5, this line. So that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. In other words, everyone who Naomi had gone to Moab with has died. And so in a very real way, she's alone, except for the two Moabite wives that her sons had married. They stayed with her despite having lost their husbands One's named Orpah, the other one is named Ruth, uh, who the story that we're reading is about. They both love Naomi. They both adore Naomi, and they are hurting with her through this, what can only really be described as a massive loss that they've incurred. And uh, Naomi gets word that the famine in Israel is over, and she desires to return home. Initially, both these Moabite wives desire to go with her, but Naomi at some point stops them and says, no, you can't do this. Um, you can't go. She tells them to go back to her, their families, go back to their people, and seek husbands from their own people, because Naomi realizes that, that at this time in history, that these women have very little hope for a future, especially if they return with her to Judah, without a husband, without, without protection and provision from a husband in this family, they are most likely going to experience severe poverty, poverty in their future. That's the best case scenario for them. Um, Orpah ultimately is convinced by Naomi. She goes back to Moab, goes back to her family, but Ruth doesn't. So if you remember verse 14 of chapter 1, it says this, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, Goodbye. She said goodbye to her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth clings to Naomi. And in fact, she makes a promise to Naomi, I'm never going to leave you. I will never leave you, no matter what. She's committed till the day she dies to always um, be with Naomi. She even says, when I do die, what I want to have happen is I want to be buried beside you. That's how much I love you, Naomi. I'm never going to, to leave you. And so this is her life she's laying down. 
She is laying down her life for the sake of Naomi. She abandons her people. She abandons her family. She abandons her gods. And in doing this, she's really, I'm really sacrificing her entire life. And it's this remarkable act of sacrificial love on Ruth's part. So these two women headed to Bethlehem. And uh, though for Naomi, it's very clear by her language, there, there seems to be no hope in the world. Ruth refuses to give up. And at the beginning of chapter 2, um, she tells Naomi, I want to glean in the fields of Judah. I want to go out and I want to glean um, in these fields. And this is the beginning, the story tells us, of the barley harvest. So we're right at the cusp of the barley harvest. And there is a provision in Hebrew law that says that when the reapers go through the fields, they need to allow some grain, some food, some produce left in the fields for the widows, the sojourners, the orphans, people who have no money to glean from, to take the last bits from the leftover grain after the, the, the reapers have gone through in their first pass, or their, really their main pass. Anything le- left over was, uh, was there for the poor, was there for people who couldn't provide for themselves, which Ruth is in this situation. So Ruth goes out and works in these fields, and she meets a man named Boaz. And this man to Ruth proves to be, as we've seen in the last week, um, incredibly generous and incredibly gracious. Not only does Ruth, not, not only does Boaz tell Ruth, um, listen, what I want is, is you to stay in my fields. I don't want you to leave my fields. Um, I, I'm going to provide you protection. I'm going to provide you with provision. You have access to our water. You can drink it whenever you want to. You don't have to fear men hurting you or taking things from you. And so when Ruth the Moabite, she's a Moabite talking to a a man of Israel, asks why he has done this, he responds with chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Listen to what he says. Boaz answered her, All that you have done, Ruth, for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz looks at the sacrifice that Ruth has made for Naomi, and his response is to ask God to bless her and repay her because it is clear to him that she has taken refuge under the wings of God. In other words, the kind of love that Ruth is showing Naomi has the fingerprints of Almighty God on it. It's unmistakable to Boaz. She is trusting in the Hebrew God, Yahweh, by coming back with Naomi, by putting her, her, all of her future in God's hands to allow him to work as he sees fit. And that's where we left off last week. We left off exploring this idea of what it means to seek refuge under the wings of God. And Ruth has done this, and she is now, the beginning of chapter 2, seeing the fruit of it. So let's go back to her first day of gleaning. I want to look at the end of her first day and really explore a few things in her life and in Naomi's life and something in particular that we're going to read here in just a few seconds. It says in verse 14 this, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. 
So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she, Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So if Boaz offering to Ruth his field, his protection, his provision, his water, if that wasn't enough to show that he really cares for this woman, he cares for Ruth, if him asking for a blessing from God was not enough to show that he truly cares about Ruth, certainly this act here, this radical act here at a mealtime, proves it incontrovertibly. He didn't need to do that. He didn't need to invite her to sit with his reapers. Yet he does. And I'm not talking about, when I say that he cares about her, I'm not talking about uh, that he thinks she's cute and that he uh, has a crush on her. I'm not talking about that at all not about anything like butterflies in the stomach. I'm talking about him seeing something in her that is extraordinary, something that is rare, something so incredibly rare that he is willing to go well beyond what the law requires to provide for both her and Naomi as though Ruth was one of his servants, one of his own people, his own household. So let's look at the sequence of events here. First, Boaz offers Ruth a seat at the table or on, on the mat, wherever they're eating, and he serves her bread and wine. And then he provides her with enough food for her to be able to say that she was satisfied. She was satisfied. In other words, she ate her fill of the food. She stopped only when she was satisfied. And given her and Naomi's predicament, I don't think it's a long shot to say that they probably, for Ruth, it had probably been a long time since she could say that she was satisfied. Since she could eat a meal and say, I'm content with what I have. I'm completely satisfied. She even has extra food, which we'll see in a few minutes that she's going to bring to Naomi from this meal. And it says when she rises to get back up to work, She's been, keep in mind, working nonstop practically since the very beginning of the day. When she gets up to continue, Boaz pulls his young men aside and he tells them something remarkable. He tells them, let her glean even among the sheaves. In other words, among the grain that we've already collected, let her pick what she needs from them. In fact, gather bundles that are specifically for her and let her pull grain from them. What he's saying effectively is this. I am giving her complete access to our harvest. She should take whatever it is she needs. Don't reproach her. Do not reprove her. Do not tell her no. In other words, I will incur whatever the loss is. I will pay from my harvest for her needs to be met. So this isn't a cuddly love. This is, and, and I think Boaz loves Ruth at this point, even though he may not fully realize it at this point. 
His love is the kind of love that says, I see you in your pain. I see you in your suffering, in your loss, everything you've lost, and you're still fighting for hope, which means to me that you're still clinging to God. You're still clinging to God. Therefore, I will give you whatever you need in order for you to be blessed so that your sacrificial love for Naomi will be fully reciprocated. But before we go any deeper into this scene, and we will go deeper into this mealtime scene, because it's critical that we do that, I want to look at something else. It says here that Ruth gleaned until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned. It was about an ephah, which is 22 liters, a lot to glean in one day. It's actually, for for Naomi and Ruth, it's five days worth of food that she got in one day. (laughs) But that's what Ruth's been doing. She's been gleaning. She beat out the, the grain. She's now coming home to Naomi. What was Naomi doing during this day? What was she up to? And I want to be careful because we can read too much into the text. So I don't want to do that. But I also don't want to be blind to her being a human being and just asking questions. What might it have been like? Last time we heard from Naomi was on the way into Bethlehem. And if you remember what she said, chapter 1, verse 22, it says this. This is Naomi. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Naomi means pleasant. She wanted to be called Mara. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? That's the last thing that she says. That's her state of mind as she goes into Bethlehem. And I don't think it's a stretch to say Naomi is bitter about what's gone on. Um, We said in the first week that her her understanding of God and his sovereignty isn't wrong at all. She's actually 100% correct. God could have kept her husband alive. God could have kept her two sons alive, but he didn't. So that loss in some way providentially did come from his hands. But Naomi is wrong in seeing, and this is her, her failure in this moment, is to see God's grace in the excruciating providence of this experience. And we can't blame her. We need to sympathize with her. Because if I'm honest, I wouldn't be able to see it either. Um, she's lost her entire family. I mean, just try to put your mind in that space. You had a house full of people, and now they're gone. They're gone. And as faithful readers of this story, we don't just read words, we try to feel what these characters felt. We try to understand what was driving them. But at the beginning of chapter 2, after they come back to Bethlehem, Ruth asks to glean in the fields. Uh, We mentioned earlier, gleaning is not a safe occupation. Gleaning is very dangerous. Actually, if you're, imagine it for a second. You're a woman, you're a young woman, and you are alone in a field surrounded by men you do not know. You're tired. Your hands are probably full. And you are vulnerable out among the stalks of grain. If one of these men were to have an evil thought or to try to harm you, there is literally nothing around you to stop that from happening. It could happen very easily. They could steal what, all that you've gathered or, or worse. 
and no one would know. Or perhaps even worse than that, no one around you might care. She's a Moabite woman. She's not a daughter of Israel. She's a foreigner. And so Ruth's decision to glean at the beginning of chapter 2 is exceedingly risky. And we see that validated in, in Boaz's pledge to protect her. He tells her, have I not charged my young men not to touch you? In other words, if you go into another field, Ruth, I can't protect you. So stay in my field. If you go in another field, you are on your own and you do not want to be on your own out there. And so Ruth leaves Naomi to glean and Naomi is again alone, probably in her thoughts. We don't know what she does or how she spends that time. Well, let me ask you, what would you do if you were in Naomi's situation? If you'd lost everyone in your family and the only person who was left in your life was a young Moabite woman who was about to, who sacrificed everything to be with you and she's about to go into the fields to glean, what would you be thinking as the day grew longer and evening came and Ruth was still gone? Remember what she's already said. The Lord has testified against me. He's brought calamity upon me. And now it's evening, and where's Ruth? She's been gone all day. And, and I'll tell you what I would be thinking. Did God take her too? Is this it for me? And we don't want to assume too much, so we can't say that that's exactly what's going on here. But I think there's a word to describe Naomi's pain and fear in her relationship with God right now. Just from reading chapter one, and that word is forsaken. She feels forsaken. She feels as though the Lord has testified against her, which means, I feel like you've forsaken me. I feel like you've left me. I feel like you've abandoned me, God. All the joy of being one of your people, all the joy of calling upon you as my Savior is probably for Naomi on the verge of collapse, if not gone already just from her language in chapter one. So what happens when Ruth come ho comes home is amazing for Naomi. And I want to read through verse 18 through 20 with that filter in mind. It says, And she, Ruth, took it up, took up all of what she'd gathered, went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her, gave to Naomi what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law in uh, with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. There's a lot here, so let's take a closer look. So Ruth comes back home. She shows Naomi what she's gleaned, and, when she, and she even brings out the bread and the food that she had. You can imagine, I don't know, maybe Naomi ate that day. Maybe she didn't eat that day. It's clear they needed her to, Ruth to go out and glean, so I would assume that she's probably eating it right away. That's what I would do. But this elicits a question immediately from Naomi. Like The first thing she thinks of when she sees all of this food is, where did you glean? 
Where did you work? Who were you working with? In other words, where did you get all of this stuff? This is amazing. This is a blessing from God. And even before Ruth can answer, she spontaneously blesses the man. She doesn't know his name. She doesn't know who this is. Who, who gave Ruth this food, who, who gave favor to Ruth, which shows, I think, some of her state of mind when Ruth shows up. She's exuberant. She can't believe what she's seeing here. And Ruth, before she even left at the beginning of chapter two, if you remember last week, she told Naomi, I know I'm going to find someone. I shall find favor with some man who owns a field there. I promise you, she trusted in the providence of God to lead her to someone who would show her favor. And Ruth was right. It says, by the grace of God, that she happened upon the field of Boaz, this man who is very generous. And so Naomi's response, she's stunned, is may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And I think if you look at, at these words closely, that's a very interesting way to put this, right? It's very weird, very strange way to put this. Whose kindness is she talking about? She says, may Boaz be blessed by the Lord, comma, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So is it Boaz's kindness? Or is it the Lord's kindness? It's ambiguous. I think the answer is yes. It is, both of them. I think many Bible scholars would agree it's intentionally vague, not to confuse, but to clarify that both Boaz and the Lord are showing kindness to Naomi here. And it's not really hard to arrive at this understanding because of Naomi's theology. We've already seen that, that everything good or bad in the universe is ultimately under the sovereign governance of God. And that doesn't mean a good God does evil. That is not what that means. But that nothing happens in the universe ever without the permission and, of God and the guidance of God for the good of his people. Period. And that's Naomi's theology, and we're seeing it in response to what she's being blessed with through Ruth and through Boaz, that despite the great loss that she's experienced, Naomi sees here, I have not been forsaken by God. He hasn't forsaken me. God has expressed his love to me through Boaz. And this word kindness here in this verse is a little tricky. If you were with us back in December, Mr. David Menenberg uh, talked a little bit about the, the word in Hebrew, hased, which is kindness here. And some of you may recall what he was noting, that, that hased has a very deep meaning that is hard to capture in the English language. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated mercy in the Old Testament. So it, it's more than a surface-level kindness that you would expect, like if you got a Hallmark greeting card from somebody or a, a bouquet of flowers. That's, that is, in our cultural in our culture, that is an act of kindness. This is deeper than that. Um, now, the thing about this line in Ruth 2.20 is that 
the Hebrew words around the phrase that we're looking at are almost identical in another part of the Bible. Genesis 24, 27. And I think this is important. Whether Naomi is intentionally drawing from her understanding of the Torah or whether this is God inspiring the, the author of this story to use the same language, whatever it might be, whatever it might be, it's clear that there's a connection. So in Genesis 24, I don't know if you remember this, we see the story of the story that where Abraham, do you guys remember the story where Abraham sends his servant to find Isaac, to go find Isaac a wife from his own people? And he goes to the city of Nahor in Mesopotamia. I, this is, story is fresh on my mind because when I last taught in kids, it was the story I was teaching. So I know this, I didn't have to do a lot of research on this part. Um, uh, the servant prays to God by like a watering hole that God would send out somebody from Abraham's family, someone from his family in the city of Nahor, because it's important for him that, that his son does not marry one of the people in the lands that serves another God. And so God, the servant prays and God answers the servant. Rebecca comes out and uh, it's very clear that this is the one that uh, the servant should, should ask and, 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 and get to, to be the, the, the wife of Isaac. And it says he bows down immediately and worships God. When the prayer is answered, he gets down on his knees and he worships God and he says this, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. Almost identical to the Hebrew used that one section who has not forsaken his hased, his love, his kindness. It's translated here, steadfast love. In other words, the servant is saying, God has proven once again to be faithful to my master. Once again, he's proven that he has not forsaken my master, but loves him with a steadfast love. And in the case of Naomi, no matter what she is thinking of at the end of chapter one, no matter what she has feared throughout the course of this day as minutes became hours and hours became an afternoon and then she's in the evening and she's wondering, where is Ruth? No matter any of those things, no matter any of those things, we see now the truth that God has not forsaken Naomi. And she sees it too. She has endured significant loss, but God is still with her. He still loves her with a steadfast love. And I don't want to diminish or shortchange her loss here by anything I say today. But I do want to ask a question. Why did Naomi feel forsaken when God took her family away from her? Naomi knows this God, this Hebrew God, Yahweh. He knows that he is all-powerful, and if she, she knows that much, she knows that he is all good and that he loves her. So why in the grip of sorrow did she believe that he has left me, he has forsaken me, and he's gone from my life, such that it took this scene, this interaction 
between her and Ruth after being blessed by Boaz to change her mind completely. Why did that happen? Why did, that, why did it take that scene for this to happen? What I want to do is I want to circle back real quick and I want to look at the mealtime one more time. And I want to, to ask the question, why is that sequence of events in this story? Why is the mealtime included in this story? And how does it relate to Naomi's struggle with being forsaken by God, with the idea that she was left and abandoned by God. So this mealtime sequence between Boaz and Ruth, if you, if you were to read the whole story, all four chapters of this book, you might ask yourself, why, why is that section of four verses in there? It could be removed and very little is lost. Why waste the ink on that section? Why include it? And what does it mean for Ruth to give what was left over from that mealtime to Naomi after she was satisfied. So let's look again at that passage. Chapter 2, verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, Ruth, and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So Ruth sat beside the reapers, and Boaz passed passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. And she even had some left over. And of what she had left over, we know that she gives it to Naomi, like we just saw. So think about what's happening here. Unsolicited, Boaz invites Ruth to this meal. And he gives her bread. And he gives her wine. And he sits her among his own reapers. Like she's no different from them. And it says here, she ate until she was satisfied. It is a powerful scene. But what does it mean? What's the purpose of that? The Hebrew word uh, satisfied is sabah. And uh, it's actually an important word because the first time it's used in this way, uh, well, one of the first times it's used is in Exodus 16. And you know this story probably by heart. Uh, the people of Israel had been freed from Egypt. They're traveling through the wilderness and all of a sudden they're hungry. And they desperately desire to have food and they start complaining to Moses about God, about not having food. And uh, God tells them through Moses, I'm going to send bread to you every morning. I'm going to send you, they call it manna. I'm going to send you bread every morning. Listen to chapter 16, verse 12, the phrase that's used here. This is God talking. In the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God. It says, you shall be filled with bread. Filled is the same word as satisfied in the Ruth text. You will be satisfied. Every morning, God's going to provide for you so that you know, you know your provision is from him. So think about this. The satisfaction that these people, the people of Israel, experience when they eat this bread exist explicitly to convince them that he's really their God. That he's their God. To show them that the Lord Yahweh is their God. He alone is the one who provides for them. 
So you see this. God is telling the people of Israel that their desire to be satisfied, their desire to, to feel satisfaction is only met through him. He's the only source of their satisfaction. The bread or, or manna is merely a picture of their satisfaction in him as a provider. Which is why when we get to John 6:30 we witness this conversation. John 6 verse 30 says, "So they said to him, they said to Jesus, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat." Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is saying here, my Father alone is the one who gives you the true bread from heaven. And then to make it abundantly clear what the true bread from heaven is, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, if you receive me as the bread of life, you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. And your satisfaction won't be focused myopically on the food that you're getting, but will be in God himself. And so here's the connection to Ruth. The reason this mealtime scene exists in this story isn't just to show the satisfaction Ruth is experiencing in the provision of food from Boaz. It's not just for that reason. But it is to show the ultimate satisfaction that can only be found in the provision of God. See, Naomi loved her husband. It's very clear based on how she acts after he goes. She loved her husband. She loved her sons. And this is why their deaths feel to her as though God has forsaken her completely. She loved them. She didn't want to see them go. At the end of chapter one, as far as she's concerned, he has testified against me. But what she doesn't see here is that God, in the loss of her family, is pursuing her full satisfaction. He is fighting for her to be satisfied. There is a need inside Naomi's soul that her husband and her sons cannot fill. There is a desperate need in her soul that, that her family can't fill. And this is true about every single person in this room and every single person on this planet. We have a need in our soul, a desire. 
that we will do anything to find satisfaction for, including to try to find that satisfaction in people and in stuff and in jobs and in any number of things, though those things in and of themselves cannot bear the weight of that need. God, in this story, has not forsaken Naomi. He has not forsaken her. He is fighting for her satisfaction. And so Ruth, during that that mealtime, eats the bread, drinks the wine, and she is satisfied. And from her satisfaction, she brings what is left of that food to Naomi, who responds, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. In other words, the Lord has not forsaken me. I see it now. He alone is the one who can satisfy my soul. He alone, which is exactly why Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger anymore. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. You will be satisfied in that. The bread of life, the bread of God, Jesus says, is the one who comes down from heaven to give life to the world. And the way that Jesus Christ gives life to the world is by giving up his life. That's how we get the bread of heaven. And Psalm 22, in my opinion, is the most detailed and vivid account that we have in Scripture of the act of Jesus Christ giving his life for the sake of the world. And even though it was written, think about this, a thousand years before the event happened, it's the most vivid and detailed account. The psalm begins with a verse you all know already. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Which is exactly what Jesus says on the cross, giving his life. And I just need, we need to recognize whenever we talk about the cross that it is impossible for us to conceive what that loss was like. To Jesus, God had always been his source of ultimate satisfaction. He never pursued anything else in the world. Why? He knew who the fountain of living water was. It was God. He had no higher joy, no greater delight. To Jesus, his father was everything to him. Just as he ought to be to Naomi and just as he ought to be to us. And in that moment, Jesus is crying out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that he didn't know. He knew why. But he needed to express it so we would know why, what had happened there in that moment. And this is the cost for the bread of God to give life to the world. And if we were to scroll down Psalm 22 and get to verse 26, we would see this verse. A result of Jesus giving his life for the world is this verse. It says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. 
Naomi's satisfaction in God was not free because like everyone else in the world, everyone else in the world, Naomi had placed people and things and life in the place where only God should be in her heart. And this failure is experienced by every single human being on this planet. The exchanging of ultimate satisfaction, ultimate joy for a kind of temporary, ephemeral satisfaction with something in this world, even good things, even family, who we are called to love, they can't bear the weight of this kind of satisfaction. And we know this about Naomi because when her family was removed from her life, it felt as though God had forsaken her. But if you get one thing today from this story, it is that God had never forsaken Naomi in all of this. He never left her, not even for a second. He was always with her. And if Psalm 22, verse 26, is any indication, the cost for Naomi to be satisfied and for her to live forever in that satisfaction, as that verse says, Jesus had to be forsaken and Jesus had to be abandoned in order for that to be possible. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Our pathway to satisfaction in God is the sacrifice of the Son of God. It was the only way. It was the only way that, that Christ could draw into himself the punishment due us for our pursuit of ultimate satisfaction from anything else in the world. That's the definition of sin. Simple definition, loving anything more than God. And that's what he paid for on that tree. And Jesus gave his body, his blood, in order to give life to the world. He was forsaken by his father in order that we might find ultimate satisfaction in his father. So in a few moments, we are going to be taking the bread and taking the cup. And if your faith is in Christ Jesus and you've received him as the bread of life, as the treasure that he is, you need to know today that he gave his body personally for you. That's why he did it. He gave it for you individually. And he is inviting you like Boaz was inviting Ruth, saying, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine and remember the cost of your satisfaction. And, and as we participate in this sacrament, I, I don't want to just think about it in terms of remembering the cross. We do need to remember the cross. But by taking Christ, taking the bread of life, 
he is inviting us into being satisfied in God forever. That's what the body and the blood mean in the sacrament. sacrament. So listen closely. If your life, in your life, no matter what you are experiencing right now, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you are, you are dealing with, personal, in family, whatever it might be, whatever you're dealing with, I want to testify to you so that it's very clear to you this day and that someone has told you, God has not forsaken you. He loves you and he sees you where you are. He's not naive to this. He sees you where you are and he wants you to know that he is fighting for your satisfaction. He's fighting for your joy. And he has in the cross done every single thing necessary for you to enjoy his father forever. That's what Jesus has done. 1 Peter 3.18 says it better than any other verse, in my opinion. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's him. For the unrighteous, that's us. That he might bring us to God. That's the reason Jesus died on the cross, that he might bring us to God in whom we will be satisfied for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, the the magnitude of our need to know this fact could not be greater. It is an infinite magnitude because there are infinite stakes. We have a, a glorious, wonderful, eternal God who is worth our complete adoration, our complete trust and for him to be the river of our delights for eternity. And yet it is so easy, Father God, to get preoccupied and caught up with good and bad things in our lives that battle and war in our affections for the throne that you alone should be sitting in. And so my plea right now for me personally And for my friends, is that the words of Psalm 73 would be true for all of us. That we would reflect on all of the joys in our lives and the joy we have in you alone. And we would say, despite the goodness of our family, despite the goodness of our friends or our job, all these different things you bless us with, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you, God. My flesh and my heart may fail. They will one day. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Because we're going to come to you and receive you as the bread of life, never hungering again never thirsting again because you are our ultimate satisfaction.
We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.